Chapter 1, Part 1 Arrival in India, September 1939 The blast of a whistle just outside the carriage window snapped her out of her reverie. She rushed to the window, pressing her face against the bars. The vigorous waving of the guard's green flag obstructed her view. Where was he? Involuntarily she shouted, John! John! A shuddering jolt shook the carriage and the train began to inch forward up the platform. In panic she turned to the two other passengers in the carriage. My husband! He's loading the luggage! Both men leapt to their feet. The older, obviously a military officer, strode over to the door, yanked it open, and leant out, searching through the throng of coolies and relatives, waving their goodbyes to family and friends, cramming their long line of carriages, stretching back to another green flag, waving at the far end of the train. "'What's he wearing?' he shouted. "'A, a, a jacket, a beige jacket and hat?' she shouted back over all the hubbub on the platform. "'I can see him, I think. He's, he's running up the train.' He stretched far out of the carriage, shouting and waving. The train was now at a walking pace and slowly picking up speed. Is he catching up to us? Yeah. Can't we stop the train? She shouted in panic. The military officer kept waving and peering back through the throng. It seemed to Rennie that time stood still. The last week flashed through her mind. The declaration of war in Aden. The landing at Bombay in India. The panic at getting her trunk from the hole. The thrill and embarrassment of meeting John again. The wedding the very next day. The first night in that pokey flat. The shopping and then the rush of getting all the stuff to the station on time. And now... A loud laugh and shout from the carriage door brought her back into the present panic. It's okay, the guard has pulled him into the guard's van. He's on the train? Yes, I'm sure that was him. He waved back at me. He didn't have a hat on. Must have lost it in the rush, he laughed. Then, realising the plight of the young girl who was now alone with two strange men in a railway carriage, he sat down on the berth beside her and said... Don't worry, my dear. The train stops at Kopoli, and he'll join us there. When's cap cap cap? She struggled to keep panic rising. Oh, just a couple of hours up the track. Don't worry, he added, seeing the fear still in her eyes. You're perfectly safe here. We'll look after you. He patted her arm gently and returned to his berth on the other side of the carriage, where his younger companion was already seated. Come, let me give you a cup of tea. And he pulled out a large tiffin basket from under the berth and bustled about in it. The train was now at a steady pace. They passed through Baikala, hooting loudly, blowing clouds of steam and black smoke over the stately colonnades of its Victorian station. Rini settled herself as comfortable as comfortably as she could, holding the mug of tea her travelling companions had at last managed to pour for her, 
That in itself had been a reassuring distraction as all three of them had laughingly tried to get the tea into three mugs while the carriage swayed and jolted over the points and busy lines through Dada and the outlying slums of Bombay. Slowly her panic receded. Her John was on the train. He'd be with her at the next station. She curled into the corner of the berth, reached for her handbag, and pulled out the small New Testament her sister had given to her just as she left England. She opened it randomly and tried to read, but her eyes would not focus as her mind raced over the last few days. Just three days ago, on the 7th September 1939, she had arrived from England off the SS Maloja. She had watched from the deck with growing excitement as they slowly approached the harbour. The city had gradually appeared through a murky monsoon drizzle. Beside her was her friend, Winifred, who had arranged to accompany her on this her first journey up out to the east. Winifred Watson herself was a seasoned traveller, but now, and as a do now as the doctor was returning to India after a furlough, she and Rene had shared a cabin and for three weeks had talked of nothing else but Rene's new life in India. Winifred had led, lived most of her life in India and in fact was born there along with her older brother Ronald and younger sister Biddy. Their missionary parents and they had lived on what was known in those days as a leper colony where her father was in charge. To Rene, Winifred's intimate knowledge of life in India was a source of both excitement and nagging worry. Would she, a fresh young girl from the quiet fields and gardens of Kent, be able to cope? Would John be disappointed in her? He had already been eighteen months in the country and seemed totally at one with it, at least from the tone of his letters. Would she get sick or even get that dreaded typhoid? Winifred had tried to reassure her, telling her that as long as she boiled every drop of water that would pass her lips and rinsed her hands in iodine after washing, she was sure to keep healthy. Rennie was not the worrying type, but the nagging fear of failing would easily raise its ugly head. Each evening before sleeping it was only her habit of reading from the, her New Testament and pleading some quiet prayers of trust that enabled her to sleep somewhat peacefully. Other news had also disturbed Rini. The last port they'd called out was Aden, at the mouth of the Red Sea, and there the news caught up with them that Britain was now at war. It had been hanging in the air for months, and many had said it was inevitable, but to hear it actually declared on the BBC by Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, echoing sinisterly over the ship's loudspeakers. At war. At war. Had sent a shiver down Rini's spine. The two girls looked at each other speechless, each with their private thoughts. Winifred fearing for her parents in Italy. Rini for her father and brothers in Kent. Would they be called up? Would the family be split even more? Would her John be called up before they got married? 
That night neither slept much. Their differing, th differing thoughts for far-flung family kept them both silently wrestling with their own private fears. Early the next morning their fears from the night had not abated. They stood on deck side by side looking out over the harbour. A British warship lay at anchor just a few hundred yards away. They watched with heightened awareness. It declared itself boldly on the bow, HMS Manchester. They watched as the crews scurried about deck. It was clearly about to sail. Little did they know that the lieutenant navigator on the bridge of that warship was a young 19-year-old who wrote of that day in his memoirs many years later. And I quote, the international situ situation worsened. By early September 1939, Manchester was at harbour in Aden. At 13.30 p.m. on September 3rd, and as the signal was received, commence hostilities with Greater Germany. Our part will be searching for enemy armed merchant cruisers in the Indian Ocean in order to protect our merchant ships, which otherwise would be sunk. That writer was George Swannell, known to most of us as Pa, without whom all of the present generation reading this book would not have existed. Ruthie's father. His story will be told in more detail later on in this book, but isn't it interesting that God led this young navigator to the exact spot where he could protect the ship in which his future son-in-law's mother was travelling? long before that son-in-law was even a twinkle in her eye. Back on the SS Maloja, the morning brought more disturbing news. All passengers were called to attend in the large dining room after breakfast. The first officer stood on a chair so that he could be seen by many. He apologised for all the drama and assured passengers that they would all be safe. However, he announced that before they set sail again over the Indian Ocean to Bombay, there would be a special lifeboat practice. He tried to make light of it, as they had already had one practice in the Mediterranean, but all knew that now it needed to be taken more seriously. Rumours were quietly circulating that Germany had a pack of U-boats lurking off the East African coast. Winifrint had leant across to Rini and whispered with a grin, <laughs> well, that would be fun. Fancy having to tell your grandchildren that you were shipwrecked in the Indian Ocean. Rini grinned back, but not quite with the same thrill for adventure. Winifred had a wild streak. But the next announcement made even Winifred's mouth drop. The ship was going to be converted into a troop ship and be, would be returning to Britain. The whole crowd immediately burst into a commotion of loud protests. Some of the women burst into sobs, others shouted angrily. It had taken the first officer several minutes to quieten everybody down again and at least reassure all passengers that the majority of them would not be affected at all as the change would only occur at Bombay. Then he reassured passengers going on to Malaya and Australia that special arrangements for their onward travel were being made by the company 
and that nobody would be stranded. And then, after announcing that more details would be given later on their voyage across the Indian Ocean, he left. Winifred and Rini had extracted themselves from the milieu, and in their cabin had talked well into the night through all the ramifications of the day's announcements. Rini's major worry was to hope that they would not be delayed, as her wedding to John was arranged for the day after they were scheduled to arrive in Bombay. Fortunately, the ship left Aden as scheduled, and none of them saw the British cruiser slink out of the harbour in the dead of night with the 19-year-old navigator on board, but to, to protect them from an enemy lurking off the shores of Africa. The next morning the girls suddenly found themselves urging the ship onwards and faster. Winifred, with her experience of ship travel, suddenly thought of something Rini could never have thought of. Baggage. Baggage was not always unloaded on the day they arrived in port. You often have to, had to return to the dock a day or maybe two after arrival to take possession of it. Come on, my girl. Winifred had announced that morning, we are going to attack the purser's office. Bring your passport and all your shipping details. It seems that several passengers had the same qualms as there was a queue outside the office. When it was their turn, Winifred took charge and announced, This young woman is getting married the day after we dock in Bombay, so her baggage must be unloaded the day we arrive. Winifred, being the doctor superintendent of a hospital in Lahore, was used, was used to being obeyed, and when a must was put in italics, it meant just that. No questions or objections accepted. Um, the purser blinked, not sure what to say, so Winifred continued. Her wedding dress and all she needs for the wedding is in her trunk, so I want you, young man, to ensure that her baggage is unloaded immediately we arrive. And you can do the same for mine. We're travelling together. The purser opened his mouth to object, but there was another of those italics, and Winifred continued without a pause. The wedding dress is on the top of her trunk, and so you'll need to take special care to ensure it is unloaded carefully and immediately. Is that clear, young man? Rini stood beside Winifred, meekly holding her precious papers. The young man... Only the assistant purser, as it turned out, had clearly met more than his match, so requested the ladies to wait a moment and retreated into his boss's office. Winifred gave a knowing wink to Rini and proceeded to keep tapping the counter with a firm forefinger, making it very clear that she was not to be kept waiting. He appeared for just enough time to take Rini's papers and, without looking at Wilfred, Winifred, disappeared back into the office. The imperious finger kept tapping, and a withering glare burnt holes in the office door. Rini tried not to look concerned, occasionally being reassured by a surreptitious winks from Winifred. A minute or two later, the man reappeared and announced to Rini, not daring to look at Winifred, "'It's all been arranged, madam. Your trunk will be one of the first unloaded, and your friends also.' This was quickly added as... Out of the corner of his eye, he could see Winifred's eyebrows rapidly rising. Thanking you, young man. 
and Winifred turned, grabbing Greenie by the arm, and stalked out. It was only when they got to their cabin and the door was firmly closed that Winifred let out a wild whoop of joy. Together they laughed gleefully at the poor man's predicament. On reflection, Greenie looked back on the incident with some embarrassment, but understood one of the reasons why Winifred was still unmarried. Incidentally, for those of you reading this who know the Watson family, you'll be pleased to know that Winifred, several years later, married a wonderful Indian doctor, Thomas, and had a very happy married life in Pakistan. Well, the rest of the journey across the Indian Ocean was uneventful, except for a rather amusing moment when a shout from one of the upper decks pointed out some turbulence in the sea. An enemy submarine! There, about five hundred yards away! There was a rush to the rail by the men and a panic by the women to clutch their children until a more seasoned passenger was able to announce, That's the whale. Submarines don't spout water. Nevertheless, there was a general tension which had not been there before Aden, and it was a great relief when land was sighted on the fifth day. For Rini, all those fears vanished in the excitement of seeing at last the country that was going to be her home. When the shout went up, Land ahoy! Both she and Winifred rushed up on deck. The smudge on the horizon disappointed them, and they realised that it would be several hours before they were close enough to see much, so went back to the dining room for breakfast and then to their cabins to get more suitably dressed. A couple of hours later, now in white linen dresses and sun hats, perhaps anticipating beautiful yellow beaches, blue sky and heavenly sunny breezes. But the scene before them was anything but. The water around the ship was a filthy brown and slapped heavily against the sides as if it were made of treacle. Every kind of flotsam and jetsam lumped along with it, reluctantly heaving itself into rolling waves. Several small fishing boats with equally brown sails toiled around them, some so close that Rini could distinguish brown faces smiling up at them, returning the, the waves of the many passengers on deck. For most of them, including, of course, Rini, it was their first glimpse of British India. It was the 7th of September, 1939. It would be some time before anyone would feel the effects of the war just declared, or indeed to realise that they would be the very last passengers to travel on the SS Maluja. So despite the uncertainty in the air and the sultry sea breeze, heavy with sweat, heat and the rancid smell of rotting vegetation, excitement and anticipation were the emotions of the moment. For Rini, her excitement was definitely far too much to conceal. Her husband-to-be was just up there, somewhere waiting for her at the dock. She leant over the railings, taking in every detail around her, a happy smile constantly creasing her face. Winifred, catching her friend's excitement, eagerly described the scene slowly emerging as they approached the shore. First, the medley of small fishing boats and tramp steamers belching grey smoke, then the dark outlines of buildings fringed with mangroves, slowly take sh taking shape as spires and domes of churches and proud Victorian buildings of commerce and grandeur. 
a fitting skyline for one of England's most prestigious colonial cities. Rini remembers fun fumbling for a handkerchief to press against her nose and mouth. Despite her excitement, the stifling atmosphere had taken her by surprise. Winifred was able to explain that the heavy stench was from the rotting vegetation of the mangrove swamps and would soon fade. The ship was now breasting its way through all the harbour traffic up towards Elephanta Island, past Kulaba and the tall spire of the Afghan church, and past the chaotic muddle of fishing boats bustling in and out of Sassoon Dock. Winifred was keen to point out the gateway of India and the majestic Taj Mahal hotel behind it. She rather pooh-poohed the extravagance of such colonial excesses, but Rini secretly thought, secretly thought they looked lovely, despite the fact that apparently the Taj was built back to front. Winifred maintained that, a, that it was rumoured that the designer of the hotel had committed suicide by jumping from the tallest dome when he discovered the incompetence of his engineers. The ship nudged its way through all the pleasure craft around Apollo Bundo, then passed the secretive naval dock before sliding alongside Ballard Pier and its jumble of low go-downs and custom sheds where it was to disgorge all its passengers. With the news that the SS Maloja was now terminating at Bombay and returning to the UK, it meant that every person on board would be disembarking at Bombay. Rini was so thankful the ship had not turned around at e Aden, but she had worried for one family she had got to know on the voyage who would now have to find other means to get to Australia. She never discovered what happened to them, as in the rush and muddle of disembarking, she had not been able to see them and say goodbye. Rini had missed the actual berthing of the ship, as at the last minute she had rushed down to the purser's office to make sure her trunk would be unloaded immediately as arranged at Aden. The, Persian, per, the, the purser reassured her that her trunk was in the first loads to be unlo unloaded. Rini noted that he seemed quite glad to be talking to her rather than her companion as he kept looking over her, sh his, her shoulder to see if Winifred was lurk lurking in the shadows. Anyway, he'd been able to reassure her that all the holes would be emptied and her trunk would definitely be amongst the very first batch. And you can tell your friend that hers also, he added, hoping he would not have to encounter Winifred again. Rini smiled to herself as she recalled that moment. On returning to her friend, patiently waiting for her on deck, she remembered being hit again by the barrage of sound, heat and smell as she descended the gangplank. It was no longer drizzling, but the quay was covered in black puddles of greasy water. A few flanks, planks had been placed over the larger ones, and passengers were making their way gingerly over them towards the customs shed. The holds of the ship were already open and ancient-looking cranes were swinging backwards and forwards with huge nets of baggage swinging precariously from their hooks. The thought of her trunk slipping out of one of those nets and spl spilling her wedding dress into those dark black puddles made her shudder. When she shared her fears with Winifred, she was relieved to learn that ships had been docked and unloaded at these docks for the last hundred years and nothing like that had ever happened before. 
How Winifred could have known that bizarre bit of information never entered Reedy's head. She had a simple trust in people, which endeared her to many, including the young doctor waiting for her on that Thursday morning in 1939.